I'll be reading and preaching for you today from Hebrews uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king and he and then he is also king of Salem that is king of peace he is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life but resembling the son of god he continues to be continues a priest forever amen let us pray our heavenly father we thank you for your word that is alive and sharper than two-edged sword i pray lord that your word would come forth with power and authority that would pierce our hearts this morning, that would convict us and convince us that you are um, on the throne, that you are our high priest, you are king forever. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that um, everyone here this morning would uh, listen and hide your word in his heart and her heart so that we may not sin against you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the old uh, uh, historians or, or philosophers uh, named Plato, uh, a Greek philosopher, um, many hundreds of years ago, um, gave an allegory of something called the cave, an allegory of the cave. You can look this up. It's a very interesting story. It's about a group of people that were actually being captive and held prisoners and held in a cave for a long time, very dark. The only way they can have any access to anything in the world is really some shadows that comes from the opening of the cave. So it's a big cave. Just imagine this room is a big cave. You're all facing this way and you're all chained and it's very dark because it's a cave and there's only just a glimmer of light coming from the outside into that cave. Uh, On the walls of the cave you see shadows of people walking around or animals or cars or any living thing just moving around or some trees. You don't see anything in reality. All you are seeing as a prisoner held captive are just shadows moving. And as you continue to live this life, you grow very accustomed and very comfortable living in that cave. And actually starting to classify the thing that you see. Maybe you see things are maybe triangular in shape and you maybe call them, uh, maybe those are just trees or you see something that's kind of rectangular, maybe it's a car passing by or something a little bit maybe more uh, human or humanoid shape. Maybe you will think that's another person just like you or I. Uh, And they continue to live there for quite some time, feeling very comfortable, understanding what these shadows are, because this is their own reality, their only part of reality, until one day, one of those prisoners, for a reason or another, broke free, and left the cave and went into outside of the cave to the actual reality, to see actually people, trees, cars, Humans, life as we see it, as we know it. What do you think his first reaction was, this man, when he went out? Was he ecstatic? Was he happy? The allegory tells us that he was actually very disoriented. He was actually very confused because he was accustomed to this reality in his mind. All this uh, compilation of shades that he, or shadows that he lived in or lived with became his reality. And when he 
left that life and went out to the actual reality, he thought this outside world is weird, confusing, frustrating. And it happens that uh, the day went by until the sun actually came. And as the sun comes behind him, all of a sudden he sees his own shadow on a wall. And then he starts to connect the, the dots together. Oh, maybe what I was living in all these years in the cave are just shadows. And they are not the reality. The reality is me. The reality is the flesh and blood that composes my body and the people around me. And he was getting very ecstatic. Where did he go? He went back to evangelize the other guys who are still prisoners. You guys are living a big lie. You are assuming that everything around you is reality and you're only seeing shadows of the reality. You're not seeing the actual real people, the actual real person. And... Of course, they didn't understand him. They didn't actually believe him. They thought that the guy is going crazy because all of a sudden he's coming back with a very weird, strange message that those shadows are not the life and you are to just ignore that or maybe just think of it as, as a, a, a shadow of the reality that, that's actually outside of the cave. And ultimately he failed in spreading this message because those guys are still prisoners to the shadows. I think what we have here today in this passage is something very similar. It's a, it's a tension and a dichotomy between accepting the shadow and loving the shadow and living in it and not wanting to go beyond this shadow, not wanting to actually accept the reality of what this shadow represents. We know that the entirety of the Bible, from Old to New Testament, every single book points to one person, one figure, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. It's when, we, when we say that to people who would, are not, don't, didn't read the Bible, they will think that we are crazy. When I, talk to, when I used to talk to my um, people back in Egypt um, who are not Christians of the Christian faith, they don't believe that. They believe that uh, there is no uh, mention of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, they, they think uh, it's just an extrapolation that's just extreme, but that's not the reality. The reality and the truth of the Bible is the central focus of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that in John 8, uh, starting from verse 53 to 59. It's a story about um, the Pharisees coming to talk with Jesus and, and had a, a big uh, and significant debate about who uh, Jesus is. Uh, he, he still, he was actually um, trying to explain to them that he is actually greater than Abraham. And he said this, one of, his, one of his great I am's is, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I happened to be. Or before Abraham was, I was. It's before Abraham was, I am. And to them that was a blasphemy. So we are here to talk about primarily uh, a, a part of a study of the Bible called typology, or a type, or a shadow um, of Christ. Let me define to you first what typology means. It is interpreting a biblical person, event, or institution as an example that prefigures an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So shadows, multiple shadows, that you can see throughout the Old Testament, that each and every one of them point to the person of Jesus Christ. We have very famous examples of shadows or types 
of Christ from the Old Testament to the New Testament. For example, John 1.29 uh, talks about the Lamb of God. John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus, he said, Behold, behold the Lamb of God. And he's saying that to the Jewish people who know exactly what he meant when they said Lamb of God, because all throughout their history, they depended on this Lamb for the forgiveness of their sin as a sacrifice. So here from Exodus 12, talking about the Lamb as a sacrifice, as an atonement for the sins of the Jewish people to do that over and over and over again, and then you fast forward 2,000 years later, or more than 2,000 years later, and then John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. So, what is the type and what is the antitype? I know Pastor Charles, when we talk, talk about Hebrews, we talk about the antitype. It is not antagonistic or against, but it's a, the, the, the fulfillment of that. So the type here is the Lamb in the Old Testament. The antitype is Christ Himself. He is the personification, the fulfillment of that shadow. Another Another shadow, another type, is also in John 3, John 3, 14. Connected with numbers. The Israelites, they were wandering in the wilderness, they were grumpy, they were unhappy with everything and everything, and they were complaining to Moses all the time. And that uh, invoked the wrath of God, and that caused serpents to actually start to bite the Israelites, and they die. Moses, of course, prayed to God, asking for mercy and pleading with him for, uh, for mercy in this situation. And what did God tell Moses to do? To erect a bronze serpent. And whoever is going to look on this serpent or at this serpent will be healed, will not die. Fast forward in John 3.14. It says also, actually this is when he was talking to Nicodemus. As We can actually look it up together here, John 3.14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Very clear type and antitype for Jesus Christ. And the third one, and then I'll move on, is the bread and manna. In Exodus, the Lord provided food for the people of Israel in the form of manna. And then in John 6, verse 30, Still in the Gospel of John. Starting from verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave, us, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, is he who comes down. The bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So you see here, there's multiple types and antitypes and, uh, in, the, in the Bible. And those are just one of the three examples. And in fact, there are so many other types of, in the Bible. The study itself is fascinating. I would... Uh, I would encourage you to study this more. We know that Joseph, for example, we know uh, he is uh, uh, a type of Christ. David is a type of Christ. 
In fact, we studied in Samuel the life of David and Abigail. Abigail and many of the commentaries speak to Abigail as a type of Christ. In many ways, uh, she, uh, she served and, um, and rescued people. I have only two main points in my sermon today. The first one is mysterious, Melchizedek. And the second point is magnificent, Melchizedek. The first point is mysterious Melchizedek, and that will cover the first three verses. And then the second point, which will be much shorter, even though it has more verses, uh, we'll talk about why Melchizedek is magnificent. Mysterious Melchizedek, we'll go back to starting from Hebrews 7, um, again, just take it one verse at a time here. First, when we talk about Melchizedek, there is a lot of controversy and, and there is a lot of um, debate about who this personality is. My study uh, throughout this last week and before that led me to the conclusion that a lot of these um, interpretations are wild and fanciful, are not based on tr- in true exegetical work from the Word of God. Uh, some have uh, said, suggested that he's an angel. Some have suggested that he's the Holy Spirit or incarnation of the Holy Spirit. Some said that he is a pre-incarnate figure of Jesus Christ himself, and they call that Christophany, an appearance of Christ before the real or true appearance of Christ in the New Testament. Um, some actually have suggested that he's Shem, uh, Noah's son. My conclusion is that he is a real person, he was a king, he was a priest, he is a historical figure. And we should not venture to make it more than that, just because some verses here may be interpreted differently. And I will go through that uh, a little bit uh, later here. But the, the, the mainstream um, commentary that I have read um, specifically say that Melchizedek is a true historical figure, not an angel, not a, pre, uh, not, uh, a pre-incarnation of Jesus Christ, simply because he's not an angel because it says in the book of Hebrews that you actually, when we choose priests, we choose priests from among men. So that alone disqualifies angels. He's not Jesus Christ because you will see later it says, resembling the Son of God. I cannot believe or I cannot understand why the Bible would choose Christ to represent Christ as a type of Christ. Are you confused yet? It doesn't make any sense. There is no reason for Christ to appear to say, just look at me, I'm here in the Old Testament during the time of Abraham uh, to represent me in, in, in 2,000 years later. That is not, does not make um, doctrinal sense. A Scottish preacher, um, as he uh, pre- preaches and, and, and com- bring commentary on Melchizedek, he says, in Genesis 14, we see Melchizedek being observed historically. And we will read, uh, or we'll talk about Genesis 14 story. In Psalm 110, we see Melchizedek spoken of prophetically. And in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, we see Melchizedek being applied doctrinally. So Melchizedek is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, interestingly, Genesis 14, a thousand years later, David talks of him prophetically as being a type of Christ. And then another thousand years later, the writer of the Hebrews expounds on Melchizedek and talk about him doctrinally. Interestingly, 
Melchizedek has been mentioned already chapter 5 and then chapter 6. And now he said, okay, now that I mentioned it twice before, and every time I say, you guys are not ready, it's, it's too much, it's a meaty subject, and you're still uh, uh, enjoying the spiritual milk, and you're not ready yet. But then all of a sudden, chapter 7 said, okay, you know what, I need to talk about Melchizedek right now. So here we are, talking about Melchizedek. So what is this Melchizedek historically? Genesis 14 talks about a very interesting story uh, of um, four kings that kind of uh, formed an alliance together to attack some other people in the land of Canaan. So these guys, they decided to attack this land and their kings and execute some kind of tributes on a regular basis. Until one year, those kings said, we're tired of this. We are going to resist. They resisted. It failed. They couldn't do it. And those four kings... Uh, led by a guy called, named Kader Laomer, uh, he still had his fist on their necks all this time. When they tried to resist one last time, Kader Laomer this time actually um, had a significant damage to them and actually captured many of them and took a lot of spoils. And one of the people he captured that was also around the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, guess who it was? Lot. Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, was also captured, and Lot and his family. The word comes to Abraham that your nephew is in trouble, you need to do something about this. And Abraham, uh, a very rich, very influential man, gathers his strong men. And the Bible, I believe, mentioned 320 people or maybe 380 people, mighty men, strong and very uh, very competent in the act of wars, and they do a great job actually uh, bringing the spoil and freeing Lot and executing victory. Abraham wins victorious and goes back home, and on his way back home, he meets Melchizedek, who came out of nowhere. There was no mention of Melchizedek before, and there's no mention in the Old Testament at all, except, of course, Psalm 110 of Melchizedek. So we don't know what this guy came from, where did he come from? And from this point, the mystery starts to kind of wrap up a little bit. So it says here, uh, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So let's stop here for a second. First, talking about the name Melchizedek. Um, that's, the, I guess, the English way of saying that, but the Hebrew, which... Again, I'm very thankful that the Hebrew language is very similar to Arabic, and I, a lot of the words that I read and studied made a lot of sense to me knowing an Arabic language. So Melchizedek, it's two words. Melek, Sadiq. Melek means king, and Sadiq means righteous. But it doesn't say Melek, Sadiq, or Melk, Melk, Sadiq. It, it actually says Melki. Melki, the I here is actually my king. My king of righteousness. So that's exactly what his name means. King of Salem, and Salem here is, uh, you think of it as Jerusalem. Most of the historians and the commentators talk about this land as the land of, of Jerusalem. And how did Jerusalem name came out of Salem? Salem is the Greek enunciation of the word shalom in Hebrews. And then Jero was, uh, uh, came from a land of Jebo or Jebusites. Uh, that was, so Jerusalem was initially, this land was initially controlled by the Jebusites, and then ultimately uh, the name changed from uh, the Jebu to Jero to Jerusalem to put the two names together, and now Jerusalem. So that king 
of all the places in the world, he is a king of Jerusalem, in which the Bible tells us that God chooses to dwell, to dwell in Jerusalem and, and Zion in the book of Psalms. So he's a priest of the Most High God. Mostly when we talk about Old Testament, we see this phrase, Most High God, but we also see a priest of Yahweh. We, uh, we see a priest, they, we don't say the word Jehovah because the Jewish people would not want to write the actual name of God, but they put Yahweh, which is a, again, it's an Adonai and, um, and another name to make the name Yahweh. So for the Jewish and the Israelites, when you talk about God, the Most High, they will not usually say Most High God. This is more of a, uh, a universal name for God. For the Israelites, they will say Yahweh. Here, specifically for this one verse, it talks about this king, priest, as a priest of the Most High God. Already talking about universality, already talking about this king, not just king for the Jews. He is not a king or a priest on the order of, the, of Aaron and Levites, but he is a unique king. He is a unique priest. You can call it a priest of, of order of one. You say the order of, that he is an order of one. There is no one else like Melchizedek, except he is here by the providence of God, portrayed this way in Hebrews to reflect as a shadow, the type, as a type, the Christ who is to come. And then he says that he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Here, this is not just uh, a normal blessing when I maybe talk to Knox and we chat and say, God bless you and I'm blessing you, I'll pray for you and I'll bless you. Uh, as, a, as a brother and sister, we can pray for, each other, pray for each other and bless each other, but this is not the type of blessing we're talking about here. This is a blessing by someone in higher and public honor. Just like Isaac blessed his son Jacob, just like Jacob blessed his grandsons Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, those are the blessings that are not just mutual blessings. Think of it here in nowadays as a pastor prays over the congregation to bless the congregation. He's appointed to hold the office of, um, of a, an elder and a, pre, and a pastor to pray over the congregation. But it also speaks of the origin of the blessing. It doesn't talk about Melchizedek himself being the originator of this blessing. Melchizedek is nothing or no one but a channel by which God blesses the people. When I pray over someone, when a pastor prays over someone, when a priest prays over someone, he is not originating the, the blessings in and of himself. He is being a channel or from which the origin of all blessings come from. And we see that in Numbers 6, verse 23 through 25. And I would like to read that. To you as well. Numbers 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. So now he's talking to the priest, the Levitical uh, tribe. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, Here it is. So the Lord is blessing them through, the, so, through Aaron and his sons, the Levites. 
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord makes make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is the blessing that this priest of the Most High God bestowed on Abraham. And the timing of it is so critical because Abraham is coming from the slaughter of those enemies of If you extrapolate that, you will think that Abraham represents the one true God and the other kings represent the polytheism in that land. In that land, there was very few people actually were faithful uh, servants and faithful worshippers of the one true God. The worship of Baal was was, uh, everywhere. So we have very few people in that time. Actually, if you look historically, Job, even though it was as a book was written, is written early, but mentioned in the Bible later on after the five books of Moses, Job also was uh, someone who lived around that time. So Abraham and Job, according to multiple commentators and historians, have lived in the, around, the, around the same time, and both of them worshipped the one true God, Yahweh. All of their neighbors were worshipping the Baal. So you have that priest king bestowing this blessing on someone after conquering those um, pagan uh, kings. And I can't help but think that this is also what the Lord is doing with us right now. As we go about our life, there is always constant battle and we are overcomers, not because of our strength, but because of the blessing of our most high priest, Jesus Christ himself, who gives us this strength. Verse 10, it says, To him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now we talked about tithing. We had multiple um, examples throughout our service today, even during the prayer time. We had several uh, scripture parts that talks about tithing. But this gesture from Abraham came well before there was a Levitical priesthood or a system where you give tithe. So think about it this way. Before the law was instituted, there was nothing in the book of Genesis up until this point that says God said so that you would give tithe to the priest. That happened later on. But Abraham, out of a worshipful heart and grateful heart, understanding that this victory just, just happened just a few hours or maybe days ago, is not his. It's not because of the might of him and his army that actually did that. It is because of the blessings of the Most High God that I have overcome. And because of this, out of this grateful heart, Here I am meeting this priest king that just met me and I'm giving that priest king as if he is the hand of God to receive him, to receive this blessing. Here, this is all coming from you and here I'm giving you a tenth. And it's not a tenth as in you just look here and you split a tenth. The tithe, when you look at the actual language, it talks about really the top of the heap. You Collect all the spoils and the best of the best, like we just read. Uh, I believe, Dave, you read from Numbers. And it talks about really the best of the best. This is what we are uh, to give to the Lord and His ministry. So before Levitical priesthood established, Abraham had the law written in his heart. He acknowledged the victory. The source is only Yahweh and no one else. There is only one verse in the Bible, and maybe, uh, as far as I know, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, there is, there is exhortation not to tempt or try God or try the Lord. But there is one verse that actually God is saying, try me. 
Try me. Ex- just do this and see what I will do. And it's in the subject of tithing. Let's look at uh, the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi 3. And we'll look at verse 10 together. Malachi 3, verse 10. God says here, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby, what? Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So we know it's a command. We know it's, uh, it is not uh, a mechanical move. Here's, here's the tenth. I'm done. Let me, let me move on. Or here is, here is my money. I'm going to spend what I need. And then whatever is left, this is going to be to God. It's an, out of a, a rejoicing in the victory we have in God, the salvation we have in God, that we're actually giving back to Him. That was something that was already His. So why did the Levites actually were commanded by the word of God in the Old Testament to receive tithe? They were actually not just saying that, well, somebody's going to stop, knock at your door, give you something, and you should just take it. They were actually instructed and commanded to collect the tithe. We know that God's promise to Abraham was for him to, for a seed and inheritance. The Levites were not given land. When the lands were split, Levites were not given any land. Because their portion was the very God they serve. The very God, Yahweh, they serve is their portion. And from that portion, that's where they get their sustenance and their support. They were also occupied by working for God and His people. This is their job. This is their work. This is their ministry. There is no time for them to take care of land if they had a land or have any other job to take care of their families. So tithe was given as a sacred tribute to God. Just imagine the immense honor it is. Just imagine the immense honor it is to say, for God to assign someone to say, you are going to be my hand that will receive this offering. That's exactly what God is doing in the Old Testament, or did in the Old Testament, to assign the tribe of, of Levi, the Levites, to receive the tithing as if people are saying, here God, this is all yours, it's coming back to you. And the ones to receive it honorably are the Levites. So it's not a small honor to be assigned as Levi to receive these tithe. Moving on uh, here in verse uh, 2. Abraham, a portion tenth of everything, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. And I'm impressed by the articulate and meticulous description of this verse because it says then. So there is something that happens, and then on that you build another thing. We are not to ignore this then, or the consequential nature of this verse. Melchizedek is first king of righteousness, and then he's king of peace. And this is a very uh, uh, common motif throughout the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, about righteousness and peace. There is multiple verses that speaks to that. And here we're talking about this king, who is a type of Christ, that will be our king and priest, king of righteousness and peace. 
Psalm 85, verse 10, it says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. And we know that is in the person of Jesus Christ, that our righteousness and our peace is in Him. Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Your king is coming to you. Righteousness or righteous and having salvation is he. And then Jeremiah 23 verse 5 it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king. You see that always coming together when it's, uh, when it talks messianically, messianically about Jesus Christ, it always talks about the righteousness and peace that he brings. He shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the Lord. And of course in Isaiah when it talks about the government will be on his shoulder and he will be called also righteous in Isaiah, um, I believe Isaiah 9. But why is it that first righteousness, then peace? Because that's how it has to be. That's how the Bible speaks of the gospel. You cannot expect to be at peace with God without being first made righteous. It's not your work. It is not what you have performed. It is not your genealogy, as we will see later. It's the Christ himself clothing you with his righteousness, not your righteousness, because our righteousness, as always we talk about here, it's really filthy rags. There is nothing that we can be proud of in and of ourselves that we can come boldly to God, but except only through Christ, who is our righteousness first and our peace. I know the world now talks about peace all the time, wanting peace, preaching about peace, and if you're not uh, living in harmony with people, then you are a bigot and you are narrow-minded and you are this and that. But we know that the peace that the Lord talks about and provides and gives and bestows on His church is not the peace that the world talks about. The peace that we are talking about is the peace that follows righteousness, that you are made righteousness in Christ. Therefore, you have peace with God. You are reconciled with God. Verse 3, it says, He is without father or mother. And here is really the most uh, controversy about Melchizedek. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, he talks about this man. It, doesn't, it, it didn't say that he's not, he, has, he was not begotten of a father or a mother, that he just, just kind of like an angelic being that just appeared on the surface of history. No, it actually talks about in Genesis, there is no genealogy for him. And that's where I see significant um, amount of commentary talking about even the silence of Scripture being deafening. The silence of Scripture being deafening, even because in God's provision, he put Melchizedek in the Bible to be a type of Christ. And one of the big things about Christ is that the genealogy, he is not according to, he's not descended from uh, Levi, the, the tribe of Levi. He is from the tribe of Judah. And you cannot be a priest, you cannot be called a priest if you, if you do not come from uh, the tribe of Levi. So here we talk about Melchizedek and purposefully and intentionally the Holy Spirit as, in, as he inspires 
writers, such as Moses in, in, in Genesis, and David, and then the writer of Hebrews, and many others, certain things were not mentioned purposefully to portray Melchizedek as someone who is not without a recorded father or mother or genealogy. Genealogy for priesthood is everything. And I mean, it's everything. If you can, could not prove who your father and mother are and trace that all the way back to the correct tribe of Levi, you are disqualified. We have an account of that in Ezra and the exact same account really in Nehemiah. But in Ezra 2, verses 61 and 62, after the captivity, people are coming back uh, the captivity in Babylon, uh, the Israelites are, are coming back and now we are trying to kind of reestablish uh, the priesthood and who should be uh, serving as priests. It says here in Ezra 2, also of the sons of the priests, the son of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, and the sons of Barzillah, who had taken, he, this is between brackets here, and those are, I would call them, one of the most consequential brackets in the Bible, because here it says the sons of Barzillia, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite. So this, these people who were supposed to be in the line of priesthood took a wife from the wrong tribe. Took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. Not only that, but they actually took the last name of the family to be the last name of, the, of this uh, non-Levite family. These sought the registration. So the doors are open. Everybody's coming with their birth certificate. And here is my name. This is my genealogy. I need to be, uh, I'm, I'm going to be reinstated as a priest. And those guys did not have enough proof, proof that they actually are uh, from that lineage or they broke the, the code. These sought the registration among uh, those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. They were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. That's in Ezra. And you will see this, uh, the same account in Nehemiah 7.64. You understand now the intentionality of why the Bible talks about Melchizedek as someone who has no father or mother. Not because he was just born out of nowhere, but because there is no record of him. All the priests in the Bible, there is records of them in the Bible. The genealogy is listed over and over there in the Old Testament, except for this king, king priest who we could not find a genealogy for him intentionally to resemble the Son of God for his eternality, for his continuity. And then it talks also about resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Let me ask you a question. If I say Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, who came first? The Son of God. Because here is the model. The Son of God is there. As we have heard in the very beginning. Before Abraham was. I am. Here in Hebrew says. Resembling the Son of God. So the Son of God was there from the very beginning. And Melchizedek resembles him. Like unto the Son of God. But not the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. I don't know about you, but if you think about the old Levitical priesthood system and how frustrating that is, you're talking about someone who sins and goes to uh, provide sacrifice and atonement and ask for the prayer and, uh, and the priest prays and, and uh, 
is considered forgiven for, of this sin, maybe on his way back, he committed another sin. And just, just imagine the sheer frustration of having to do this over and over and over again. This is not what we have in Jesus Christ. We have in Christ a priest who is ruling as a priest forever and eternally. As I close, I want to say that this passage is not... Maybe, maybe I should, before I give you the closing comment, I want to just give, say a couple words about verses 4 to 10 because it's just one argument about why that writer thinks that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And it's very simple and it should not take a long time because Abraham saw him and gave tithes to him. So immediately Abraham recognized the honor that this man has as a superior to Abraham. And for the Jewish people, and for those, uh, for the Jews that listen to this sermon of Hebrews, that was a big deal. When you tell them, this man, this Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ, is greater than Abraham. Why? Because Abraham, when he saw him, he already provided ties to him, acknowledging that he is uh, higher and more superior than him. Not only that, Melchizedek himself blessed Abraham acknowledging the superiority of Melchizedek as well. And thirdly, one of the third reasons why Melchizedek is greater and superior to Abraham and the Levitical system because the continuity, because also the tithing is a, is a big deal because in Abraham, it says here that in Abraham, all the nation of Israel really gave tithes to Melchizedek. Because the Levites were in the loins of Abraham. Think of that as similar to us inheriting the original sin. Because we, in Adam, we inherited the sin. Just like by the same concept, in Abraham, Levites and the priests on the Aaronic priesthood order, all of them were inferior to Melchizedek because they gave tithe to Melchizedek through Abraham their patriarch. And notice that here it talks about the patriarch just invoking the greatness of Abraham because I'm going to tell you how great Abraham is. I, we, there is no doubt that Abraham is a great figure for the nation of Israel. He's a patriarch. He's our father. He received a promise. But hold on. This priest, Melchizedek, is even greater than him. In closing, I want to say that this whole passage and, in, and, and indeed the rest the, the entire epistle to the Hebrews is about the person of Jesus Christ as a king and a priest it's even more bigger than that because it's all about fellowship with God it's about quorum Deo it's about the face of God how can we be as sinners be able to have access again before the face of God uh, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened to them when they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden? God instituted cherubim and, uh, and fire to basically block the way. You cannot enter back into that. You, you have broken that fellowship. You do not have that peace now. Something needs to happen down the line of history for this access to reopen again. But until then... Until then, you have to have a priest and a high priest that will go into the Holy of Holies and will have to sacrifice for himself first before he can intercede on behalf of the rest of the nation of Israel. We are talking about a priest here in Jesus Christ. We are, we, I don't want 
everything to be focused on Melchizedek. He is the type. Don't be like the other guys who were in the cave who thought that the shadows is everything or the shadows are everything. They, they, they represent a more beautiful, more perfect picture. The shadows, at best, they will be imperfect. Melchizedek, at best, even though he's superior to Abraham, he is still an imperfect picture for the priest we have in Jesus Christ. He's a priest and king, which was something that was not allowed in the Old Testament. You cannot find someone who is a priest and a king. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is a priest and king. He's without genealogy and he's universal. As you heard in the beginning, he talks about Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. He is not king of Yahweh only, for the nation of Israel only. It's a priest for all humanity, for all who calls on his name for access. Jesus Christ was and is that bridge and mediator. The word priest uh, in Latin really means bridge builder. Our priest is the ultimate bridge builder. It's not a bridge that you have to go in and out of multiple times like the, the, the Jewish people did over and over and over again, sacrificing and asking for forgiveness. Yes, we confess our sins as we, as we still struggle with sin, but our salvation is secure in Him. Our salvation is secure in Him. That allows us to enter the Holy of Holies in Jesus Christ, in the work of Jesus Christ, without shame, without legalism, without needing animal sacrifice anymore. He is everything we need and more. He is our Heavenly Father longing to tabernacle among us. Let us pray.